Hi, this is Daphne from Tacoma Park, Maryland. Dusted is a story wonk podcast. To show your support and for exclusive content, visit patreon.com slash storywonk. Thanks. And welcome to the show. I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich. And this is Dusted. You're hey, you know what? Lindsay will give you a hand with that. Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. Badum and Tish. Thank you very much. Both of those things for you <laughs> for that opening. Here we are at the end of the first season of Angel. Our thoughts on episode 122 to Shanshu in LA. What a finale. I, yeah. This is such a big moment for Angel. Such a turning point in the series. I think we can spoil the ending of today's episode. This is number one with a bullet on our big list of every Angel episode ever, right? Yeah, absolutely. We've had some really good episodes of Angel, but in the top two, we've got 5x5 Five Five and Sanctuary as the uh, as the double story. And we've also got I Will Remember You, both of which are crossovers from Buffy and sort of borrow on the Buffy magic. This, is, I think, is the first time that Angel kind of steps out into its own and really puts its foot down in a very, very strong place. This is the time where we get, we've been kind of building up to this new vision of Angel and, you know, Angel's Los Angeles and what this means and where this place is in the Buffyverse. Um, but here we have the game changer that absolutely settles us in in where we're going to be going from here on out. And, uh, and I'm kind of excited about it. I think yeah. it's real good. We've been seeing the elements emerge and be locked into place over really the back half of the season. Yeah. I think everything post Doyle's death yeah. has been, you know, steps along the path Evolving. to this episode. Mm-hmm. Here, though, it really comes into focus. That is not to say that this is a perfect episode. No. There are some structural problems. There's mm-hmm. certainly some pacing problems. And we have to deal with an entirely unnecessary Kate Lockley. Well, an entirely unnecessary David Nabbit, and sad as it is, and, and I would not say unnecessary, but an underutilized gun. Uh, yes, gun possibly suffers the most. Mm-hmm. David Nabbit is more a function of the pacing problems in the first half of the episode. Let's get into specifics. Right. Do you want to give us some background on this episode? Sure. This episode aired on the 23rd of May in the year 2000, written and directed by David Greenwald. David Greenwald, this is a sixth of 17 episodes that he's going to write for Angel. He's given us previously, I Fall to Pieces, Room with a View, I Will Remember You, mm-hmm. which is one of our favorites. She which is not. Um, and direct- <laughs> directorially, uh, this is David's second episode. He also directed She. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think, you know, as far as direction goes, both She and this one, I think, pretty good. I think so, too. You I know. think he manages to do some really interesting things with some very unconventional sets and spaces. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a workmanlike approach yeah. to direction, but that's perfectly serviceable. It represents the voice and the style of Angel as a series, and mm-hmm. I think it, it works. And there are a couple of set pieces in this episode which are striking. Oh, yeah. Which are extremely ambitious. When I think of Tushanshu in L.A., I simply think of excess. Mm-hmm. This is such a huge story, arguably too huge to be done in 44 minutes for the budget that they had and the resources that they had. There's just a lot going on. I think with some of the fat trimmed, this could fit nicely in a 44-minute episode. I'm not sure you can trim. You're right that there is a little fat, yeah. certainly, even not within that space. There is not a lot. Not a lot, yeah. But we end up with a frenetic pace 
in the back half of the it second does. act. It does. It gets it gets it gets a little weird there. Yeah, in the it third, sure the third does. part. Yeah, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, we don't land all of the emotional stuff. There are mm-hmm. a couple of lines, a couple of beats, a couple of character moments that are swallowed by the structure of the story themselves. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, those are the character beats that I like the most. They are. And they're the character beats, too, that I help along with my enthusiasm. Like, my internal enthusiasm, I watch every second of those beats and I read everything <laughs> into it. I suck the marrow out of those beats, definitely. Let's get to it. Oh, actually, before we get to sure. it, a piece of minor trivia, because even after having been a fan of Buffy and Angel yeah. for, I don't know, a decade and a half now, something like that, I still discover new things. And while Putting together my notes for this episode, I discovered a little piece of trivia that I hadn't happened across before. Ooh, what's this? Do you know that Christian Kane auditioned to play Riley? No. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, that I'm going to give you so a minute. Great. Go back through season four, transpose Mark Lucas for Christian Kane all oh. the way through. He's about the same height as Sarah Michelle Gellar, right? Uh, Christian Kane, I think so. But he's powerful, though. When you see him as Elliot and no, Leverage, no. you believe that this guy can completely he's kick ass. He's got a serious physicality to him. It would have been a very different kind of Riley. It would have been a real different kind of Riley. And I think, oh, God, you know, and I don't want to slam Mark Lucas because I really feel well, like it was a bad match. Ironically, you know? I kind of think that Mark Lucas might have worked better as Lindsay. Maybe. Oh, yeah, maybe. I think he could have brought that that preppy oh. discord. There's a, there's a certain ambiguity about his nature there. I think the two of them I don't could have worked I like Christian, I like Christian Kane so much as Lindsay. I don't know oh, if no. I could trade him for Riley. I'm a big fan, too. I'm just saying that in the alternate universe where the casting went differently, Can we make I Christian both shows Kane work well. into two people? <laughs> And haven't played. Both I don't think parts? the world is ready for that. I would have been. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe too much of a glimpse exactly. into your private life there. Let's get to our episode. Previously, the vampire angel was cursed with a soul and chased out by his sire Darla. Then something, something, Kate Lockley, something. <laughs> Lindsay falls to temptation at Wolfram and Hart, and Angel steals a scroll that has some things to say about his future. Is it? weird in the previously on Angel that we don't get Angel staking Darla in season one of Buffy? It does feel, well, okay. They don't want to give it away. At this point, Darla but at the end. Darla. Okay. In the cold open. In the previously on. In the previously on. Yeah, but they don't have him killing her. Her. I mean, it was about it's about Angel has a filthy soul. It wasn't about he killed Darla. So yeah. I don't know. I feel like that might be um, be giving away a little bit too much. Maybe they thought the it was spoilery. Why? To watch this episode, I went back and watched Angel from yeah. season one of Buffy the oh. Vampire Slayer, the episode in which he stakes Darla. And boy, howdy, that doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up at all. The effect. The effect, the framing, the way it's shot, the way it's choreographed. Well, crazy Gar- Darla with the guns at that point was Darla weird. with the guns was weird. Darla in her weird. Catholic schoolgirl outfit oh, was weird. Yeah, no, it but was all mostly weird. it's the way that it's shot. You go back to season one of Buffy, uh-huh. even from the end of season two, really. Yeah. The delta between those two shows, the delta mm-hmm. between the production values. Yeah, the visual quality. Is huge. Yeah. And maybe I mean, Buffy season one was mm-hmm. made for, I think, $47. <laughs> they really didn't spend much on it at all. <laughs> So I'm forgiving of that, mm-hmm. but wow, it would have looked really weird to have I imagine those it might cuts have. stitched in. I imagine it might have. Yeah. I might have been tempted uh-huh. to do a reshoot. I might have been <laughs> reshoot tempted. Reshoot that scene. Honestly, well, we basically reshot Angel's origin story with Darla uh-huh. within the frame of Angel so that we could have it in slightly better quality mm-hmm. and get simply more of it. Sure. We could easily have had Angel earlier in the season 
flashback to staking Darla. We see the whole thing from his POV. Mm-hmm. Because in that scene in Angel, he shows up out of nowhere, stakes her, nods at Buffy, and then disappears into the darkness. <laughs> yeah, Angel was a little underdeveloped, I think, at that point. <laughs> No, that's actually as fully developed as he could be in the first season of Buffy. It's so fun to look mm-hmm. back at that stuff and see how far he's come. Oh, wow. No, that's crazy. So while it's perhaps a little strange that we don't get the staking, yeah, I think we can probably understand why. Maybe, maybe. From there, Wesley studies the scrolls of Orbasian trying to decipher the word Shanshu, a word pivotal to the prophecy about Angel. Cordelia cracks wise, but, you know, only Angel gets her. A figure in a shimmery purple cloak stalks through the office outside as Cordelia reads about Lindsay's bright and shiny new position with Wolfram and Hart. And is it just me, or does a six-figure salary not sound terribly impressive? For Los Angeles? For that guy in that job? Well, I mean, if you're talking high six figures, if you're talking just breaking six figures, probably not enough to tempt uh, Lindsay. But if it's high six figures, I think that's impressive. Fiction? I think they could have sold the point a little more effectively if they'd gone to the seventh figure. Well, also considering that he works at Wolverman Hart. And, you know, it's not like they lack resources. Exactly. You know, exactly. So, yeah. They have resources to burn, as we'll see <laughs> later in this very episode. Angel's spider senses are tingling, though, and he creeps outside to find David Nabbit who is just amazed by Angel's office. The coffee, the couch. If David Nabbit ever went to Staples, he would lose his mind. (laughs) He's jealous of the exciting life that Angel and the investigators lead and asks him about cool demons, just in time for us to cut to a small neighborhood park outside of Wolfram and Hart, where a demon is being summoned from a ring of fire. Welcome, says Holland, to Wolfram and Hart, and we cut to credits. It's a pretty good cold open. I like it as a cold open. I have to say, I have this thing with David Nabbit. I really like that the way narrative works in his world, that this, when he's sure. coming out and he's talking about, you do all this cool stuff and there's these demons and everything's so cool and a demon could walk through <laughs> that door at any moment, this whole thing. Like, I love how how immersed he is in the whole idea of the narrative and how in love he is with that narrative. And I really kind of, I, I regret that we don't get him and we don't get to see him kind of move from that narrative space yeah. into something else. I also don't feel like that story, and I think this is what they eventually came to, that that story is necessarily what Angel is about. But I like nope. the idea of seeing David evolve into somebody who could really help them and be useful, especially because he has financial resources and we don't have to go through this whole, oh, we're so broke thing anymore. And that will yeah. be, not to jump the gun on this, that will be basically his final contribution to the series at yeah. the beginning of season two. He is, though... Very much a halfway house between Xander mm-hmm. and Jonathan. Yeah. He brings some of that same spirit. And you're right, I think, that he feels like a Buffy character. You know, he kind of does. And I really like, I I want him there because I like that story. I like that idea. I like him have been in love with this narrative and this idea that he has and mm-hmm. then coming face to face with what that reality means, um, which is something that would be entirely different. And to see him evolve from somebody who's kind of goofy into somebody who's. <laughs> but I feel like we've sort of been doing that with Wesley. So it's sort of repetitive of not entirely, but kind of repetitive of some of the Wesley art. Yeah. And, you know, and we've done that. So, I mean, I, I like him a lot and I really love the potential for the story here. I think in the end, they probably made the right decision by not following that thread 
In which case, do we really need them in the season finale? Well, I mean, they probably didn't know, not. Yeah, had we known then what we know what now, we know perhaps now, this would exactly. have been rewritten. Well, but he's, he has no has absolutely no narrative purpose in this 44 well, minutes. Except that this episode does stand in part as a template for season two of Angel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the things that they are clearly striving to do in this episode is expand Angel's world as much as possible. We're bringing in... Everyone, I mean literally everyone who's been significant in the arc of the season, Mm -hmm. is present in this episode. And that, I think, accounts for David and for Kate and even for Gunn. Mm -hmm. We get these nods to these secondary characters in an effort, I think, to make Angel's world feel more developed. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise we would end the season with three guys in an office just as we began the season. Yeah. Yeah, which actually, I don't hate. (laughs) No, I don't hate it either. Um, I'm not sure that it is entirely successful or even entirely necessary. Yeah. But I think I can understand the impulse I can understand that too. Mm -hmm. Because this episode is so much about about looking forward to what Angel will be. And I think that it turns out that that Kate isn't going to be a terribly significant part of the series. Mm -hmm. And David is barely going to be a part of the series at all. But they didn't know that at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think if you assume best intent and look at this as a template, as a pitch for season two, season three, season four, then the inclusion of David and Kate and Gunn makes a little more sense. And we can be glad at least that Gunn sticks around. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't get much to do in this episode, but what he gets is great. And that is going to be the tagline for Gunn for quite some time. (laughs) (laughs) Back in the office, David tries to break the awkward silence, then leaves. But something has triggered Wesley's memory, and he's figured out the meaning of Shanshu. It means death, which, I mean, what were the odds, right? Mm -hmm. Fully half of the words on that scroll must mean death, one way or another. (laughs) It means that Angel's going to die, which doesn't seem to perturb him at all. But we're taking a mystery scroll awfully seriously, with ominous music and everything. (laughs) Angel is calm. But speculation about his future is postponed by a sudden crashing vision of a homeless woman and a slime demon. Angel dashes off to the rescue as Wesley cares for Cordelia, and she looks forward to the day she can punch the powers that be. A classic Angel cold open. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. Let's just start the ball rolling. Let's get the plot moving. Mm -hmm. It does lead us into what is perhaps the biggest structural problem that faces this episode, which is simply that the first half, Mm -hmm. everything up to the midpoint, which is the moment at which Cordelia visits the street market. We'll get Mm -hmm. to that in due course. Mm -hmm. Everything up to that point just feels baggy. It Mm -hmm. feels unfocused and undisciplined. And I'm not sure the degree to which that actually ripples out through the back half of the episode and makes that feel more frantic or forces it to be more frantic. Mm -hmm. But when the pace picks up, you can't help but feel, well, what were we doing for the first half of the episode? Why did we waste we all of that time? We were hanging out with David Nabbit. And that's the thing that, you know, I like him, but he doesn't have a narrative purpose in this episode. And we could have kind of shifted things forward sure. a little bit and gotten to it a little but faster. But it's, it's not even just David, because we cut mm-hmm. from there to Wolfram and Hart, where we're catching up with the scroll of Abersian. The demon Voka is unhappy that Angel has the scroll, since the whole point of his summoning is to tear Angel away from the aforementioned powers that be. He's going to take care of it, if you want something done right, after all. Downtown, Kate shows up to the scene of the slime demon attack and is mocked by the two uniformed police officers on the Mm -hmm. scene. She is now the Fox Mulder. I'm surprised we didn't actually get a specific Fox Mulder reference. specific reference, reference, yes. Mm -hmm. Given that this was the year 2000. We're recasting Kate in the world of Angel. 
but it doesn't seem to be to any purpose. Because uh, no. this is Angel's story, and as far as Angel's concerned, Kate's role isn't changed by the fact that she's now the kooky outlier of LAPD. Well, because she's still so nasty and angry for reasons that, like, yeah, I understand that vampires killed her dad. But, yeah. you know, Angel's a good vampire. He has shown himself to save people a number of times. I think there's a point where you can stop being, like, you know, I mean, she's kind of really super prejudiced about it, yeah. you know? No, she um, is. And I'm not sure if it's in the performance or if it's in the writing, but when she goes into the alley uh, and Angel comes out of the shadows with the homeless woman. Yeah. She looks annoyed that he saved her. Exactly. And I don't think that's what Which we should is be going kind for. Of the whole point. And I mean, here's the thing with Kate. Like, uh, last week we said, or it might have been the week before, we said that she should have been killed as part of like this motivating <laughs> for, force for Angel. And somebody on the forum was like, it was actually very, very cute and said, You think we should fridge Kate? That's cold. And by the way, loved the pun. So I really enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> um, but the thing is, it's not fridging Kate. If she served another purpose in the narrative, the, the fridging is when a woman exists solely to be killed so that she can motivate solely somebody to motivate, and has yeah. no other characteristics whatsoever. We have had enough of Kate. I think it's about time to kill her, to motivate Angel. Um, and it could have been done really, really well. Now she's just here to be bitchy and prejudiced and kind of a jerk about things. Whereas the I like the idea, like, you know, one of the things that I would have really loved about Kate is if she had been enthusiastically pursuing this, like, almost almost like David Nabbitt, you know, enthusiastically pursuing this world that she doesn't understand that so that has so much possibility, mm. and so many things to learn. And it's exciting. But instead, she comes at it from this place of, yeah, I know what's going on now. And I'm just going to kill all of you, you know, without any understanding of the nuance, without any appreciation for what it is that Angel protects her and everybody else <laughs> in Los Angeles from. And the problem is that we make her even less sympathetic by having Angel almost acknowledge that, like, yeah. almost lampshade the fact that she's being irrational and 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 somewhat bigoted when we get language like your kind mm -hmm. when yeah. we're talking about about ridding the city of your kind and he says my kind right mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's almost a a it's almost a break in the text there it's almost yeah. a break in the fiction it, no it's, it's incredibly bigoted it's and, misjudged and ignorant and but the problem is yeah i think we've written ourselves into a corner with kate i yeah. think that when we're talking about you know fridging kate in order to motivate angel <laughs> I think that the reason that we jumped on that is simply that Kate is an appendage now. Kate she's doesn't have a real purpose. She doesn't. You know, she's already done stuff. She's been a fully realized character. Oh. It's it's not, well, you know, as realized as she's going to get. It's not a fridging if she's been there, you no, know, no, she's you're, done you're right. stuff. It's not. Yeah. The problem is, though, that, that we're looking for something to do with Kate that gets her out of the picture because her role within the story is just too insubstantial. Well, and you're yeah. right. If we'd given some kind of hybrid, if there had been some kind of unity between David and Kate and Gunn, mm -hmm. I think that one of the reasons that Gunn sticks around and the other two really don't, I mean, Kate is going to show up through A season two. Season She's two. always going to be problematic yeah. mm -hmm. through, through that entire arc. I think the reason that Gunn sticks around and the other two don't is simply that the show that Gunn is a part of is the show that's going to exist going forward. Exactly. David mm -hmm. exists in a weird Buffy show. Yeah. And Kate exists in a police procedural show in which she's the protagonist. Yes. We're mm -hmm. not telling either of those two stories. We're going to go with yeah. L.A. Noir. We're going to go with West Coast Noir. Mm -hmm. And Gunn's a vital part of that mm -hmm. story. I think that's the difference in the characters. If there had been more unity in the extended cast, mm -hmm. then we might have been able to forge some interesting relationships potentially yeah but we'll never know instead we just get this weird scene where 
Kate rushes off in the middle of the night to investigate a slime demon attack and... And then yells at the guy who saved the woman. Yeah, yes, exactly. Berates Angel for doing good, which is an odd strategy for... Uh, for a cop, for a sure. Yeah. yeah. The next morning, Wesley has exhausted any alternative interpretations. Shanshu means death and it's a done deal. It doesn't bother Angel, Wesley believes, because he's not a part of the world. He demonstrates, with the aid of a donut, that Angel doesn't want, doesn't change, doesn't grow, and thus doesn't fear death. Cordelia wants to find a way to connect him to the world, and Wesley can't help. Angel comes up from the apartment below, and despite Cordelia's temptations, really doesn't want a donut. Wesley explains a little about their concerns, and Cordelia is not ready to give up. Wesley then suggests that Angel consult the oracles, which, despite some hesitation from Angel, seems to be exactly where we're heading as we cut to the oracles doing their famous summoned-by-a-lower-being routine. Except it's not Angel, but the demon Voka. We have a brief prophecy standoff, then Voka summons a scythe, and we cut away as he cuts away. (laughs) What do we think of... The Wesley Cordelia stuff. Firstly, let us not beg the question, is Wesley right? Is Angel cut off from the world? Um, is that why he doesn't fear death? I think I think when you've lived 240 years, possibly death may not be the worst thing in the world. Not to mention the fact that Angel is about fighting in the moment, doing what he has to do, fighting evil, saving people as much as possible. But he's not really he's not really invested in any kind of long term thing since Buffy, you know, and he broke up. There's nothing really for him to look forward to. So I think that there is something to that. And I really like the way that Cordy works so hard. I think we get really good Cordelia in this episode. Um, I like her. I like her when we, when we see her, I like that she is really invested with getting Angel to appreciate life. But when, when there's a prophecy that someone is going to die, getting them to appreciate life at that point makes that prophecy a bad thing. (laughs) If you get a prophecy like that and he's like, eh, whatever. It seems to me like that's a status quo you could live that's, with. That's why maybe make, not a why, bad. Why is your goal to make him love life so that yeah. he can suffer and be upset about this prophecy? Right. I think I can understand Angel's perspective somewhat because you're right. He's all about the fight. He's all about doing good. But he's not ultimately a martyr. Mm-hmm. He doesn't believe that his suffering in and of itself generates goodness in yeah. the world. Mm-hmm. So he knows, I'm sure, that... If he dies, as is prophesied, then he'll die in the fight. He'll die accomplishing something. He'll die doing his best. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe not something to be feared. That's that's maybe not not something in the world. Yeah. Like he's, it seems to me like what's happening here is Angel has made his peace with this. And he's had quite a long time to make his peace with this. And let's not forget. He's already died like once or twice anyway. So he's kind of, this is sort of old hat for him, right? Um, So I think that I like that Cordy wants to make him connected, wants him to enjoy life, to have things to look forward to. I think that that's incredibly sweet. So the arc that we get through the rest of the episode, and this is the stuff that for me is, is a little eclipsed, a little occluded by the action of the episode itself, because the arc that we get, it seems to me, is Angel's dawning realization that in fact... He is connected. Mm -hmm. He has been connected for some time now. We get some oddly kind of purposeful repetitions of the idea of family, Mm -hmm. which I feel would be more powerful if we hadn't already gone to that well. They're family. We know that. We've had that entire Mm -hmm. discussion and done that entire thing. But it feels as though that should be more revelatory within the span of this episode than it is. Do you agree with that? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I feel like he is very connected, obviously, to Wesley and to Cordelia. And and I like that, you know, the scene that we're about to go into, Cordelia goes to the street fair. Mm-hmm. And it is Cordelia being put in danger that actually brings Angel into connection. This is something that he already has, but they don't realize it, you know. They don't realize, I think, how much they matter to him. Yeah, but didn't we do this? Uh, you Haven't know. we already yeah. explored that story as fully as it can be explored, <laughs> haven't we had Cordelia realize yeah. that she has family? Mm-hmm. It, it just feels as though, without anything else to back it up, with that being the fullest extent of the revelation at the heart of the episode of, of Angel's emotional arc, mm-hmm. given that we've already done it, and given that there's nothing else within this episode, it ends up feeling a little hollow, and I want there to be more, and I'm not sure that there isn't more, but whatever else is there is just made messy, made clumsy by the frantic pace of the back half of the episode. Yeah, we just I don't, don't get time. I see the family thing because I, I see it as more of more refreshing that connection that we've already made uh, than necessarily trying to f- newly establish it. What do you think of the cut to the oracles? Um, you know, I mean, it's it's a classic misdirection. It's kind of nice. And then all of a sudden we have Voka, who, by the way, has an awesome superpower of just like making this awesome scythe appear whenever he wants. Voka is great. Yeah. Like a really great presence. A singularly fantastic voice. Yeah. One of my favorite voices. I mean, mm-hmm. we get a lot of people in Buffy doing demon voice. Yeah. His is one of the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that his presence and his competence which is demonstrated rather than informed yes key difference his competence and his entire aesthetic presentation just really work for me he's serious business from the minute he shows up and Mm -hmm. that's not easy in a show that presents us with a new demon pretty much every week yeah absolutely well i think part of it too is that he is a very humanoid demon Mm -hmm. so we get to see there's not so much prosthetic there there's the mask but not so much that we can't see the expression that we can't you know, kind of get a feel for who this guy is. You yeah. know, uh, sometimes when we get these demons who are all tentacles and slime and whatnot, it's it's very hard to like connect <laughs> with them. But he is, uh, Voka is is a real, you know, formidable presence within the story. And I like too that, you know, he's looking at Wolfram and Hart and being like, you idiots, yes. you useless idiots. It's kind of fun seeing that. I said earlier that the turning point in the episode is Cordelia at the street fair. I'm now realizing that's not true. Mm-hmm. It's it's Voka with the Oracle. Yeah. It's that moment when we get the cool and completely unnecessary special effect of him summoning yeah. the scythe. Yeah. There's no need for that, but that's really great. But you know these guys who've been incredibly powerful, who have before. I mean, let's not forget, turned back time. I mean, they've got yeah. some chops that they are truly in danger. But we get a nice, a nice beat of vulnerability for them. Mm-hmm. I still don't like the male oracle yeah i don't like what he's doing with that role i didn't Mm -hmm. like him earlier in the season either but the female oracle brings a little vulnerability brings a little self-awareness and because these beings are so profoundly powerful that tiny hint of vulnerability is enough Mm -hmm. when you realize that she's even just concerned right then you suddenly start to take it very very seriously so this is where the episode really starts to kick into gear At a street market, Cordelia is shopping for art supplies for Angel, hoping that a hobby will reconnect him to the world. As she buys literally one of everything that the vendor has, we get that brief cutaway. Uh We get the wonderful line from the vendor saying, oh, these are on sale. This is really good. They come with this and they come with And we cut away to Voca moving unseen through the crowd. And when we cut back, Cordelia has more art supplies than were on the table in the first place. She really cares about Angel. Mm -hmm. I love it. 
Savoka passes unseen through the crowd and brushes Cordelia's hand. She shakes it off, takes a couple of steps, and is struck by a vision. She pulls out her cell phone, but doesn't even have time to call Angel before more visions hit her. She falls to the floor, screaming as the vendor rushes to help her. Even knowing that this was coming, Mm -hmm. even knowing that it wasn't really going to amount to anything. Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. Good God, that's hard to watch. No, this whole thing with Cordy is incredibly Charisma Carpenter powerful. Yeah, mm-hmm. is astonishing. Yeah, because we get usually a very kind of calm demeanor throughout Buffy. There's something slightly heightened about the performances. Mm-hmm. It feels slightly theatrical, and that's not a criticism. That's just the tone that they've gone for. This doesn't feel theatrical at all. Yeah. This feels raw in a really urgent and and impressive. Way I find it very difficult to watch. It is very difficult to watch. It's hard to watch Cordy suffer that way. That night, Voka slips ethereally into the office as Angel goes to lock up the scroll in the weapons cabinet. It apparently took him, I don't know, nine hours mm-hmm. for the elevator to descend. It, it takes a really, really long time. Apparently. Yeah. He looks pensive as he rolls up the scroll, and though he feels something in the apartment, he's distracted by a phone call from the hospital about Cordelia. He runs out, leaving Voka to retrieve the scroll from the cabinet without any trouble at all and replace it with something unseen, mm-hmm. but with an ominous hum. <laughs> At the hospital, Angel hears Cordelia screaming and finds her thrashing on the bed, consumed by visions. Angel says that drugs won't help her, and the doctor warns ominously that if they don't find a way to stop it... Dun-dun-dun-dun! Ellipsis. Exactly. (laughs) I appreciate the fact that we don't even get the back half of that line because it's completely unnecessary. We all Mm -hmm. know what happens if they don't find a way to stop it. Right. It's really nicely done. It is. It's and when I said that the episode picks up, boy, mm-hmm. how did the episode picks up? There's so much in mm-hmm. this that I just love. The subtlety of Voka moving through the crowd first in the street market, yeah. I think that works beautifully. Mm-hmm. Then his presence in Angel's apartment. And the way we get that shot where Angel's crossing from right to left, yeah. and we track with him and we see Voka in the background, then Angel stops, mm-hmm. takes a step back, and there's no one there. Mm-hmm. The fact that we do that without a cut. Yeah. It's just really nicely done. It's so subtle, but builds such a real sense of oppressive mm-hmm. threat. Yeah. Particularly no, because we're in, this is Angel's sanctum. And you know, his this movements is his place. are so smooth yeah. and, and not human. I mean, it's it's just creepy enough, you know? It's, it's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Back in the apartment, Wesley finds the weapons cabinet and the treat left inside. He runs, and as Angel pulls up outside the office... It is consumed in a giant explosion. I guess we can jump the timeline just a little here. Yeah. The office is done. Mm-hmm. No more office. Mm-hmm. The reason that they destroyed the office, or at least one of the reasons that they destroyed the office, because I think anytime you destroy a set yeah. on Buffy or Angel, it's mostly because they just really love destroying sets. <laughs> It can be fun. Well, it also, you know, completely, like, it takes the headquarters out. It takes mm-hmm. the safe space away. There's a away. very important narrative mm-hmm. purpose to that. I think you're absolutely right. But the main reason for getting rid of it was just that apparently it was hell to shoot. Yeah. Those constrained spaces. I can Which see makes that. sense. They're cool looking. They really are. They're, they're cool looking. Yeah. But, yeah, you've only got maybe two camera positions in each of those. You know, you've got the, mm-hmm. the two angles on the front office, then you've got the two angles on Angel's office, 
And you've got maybe three or four downstairs, but not many more than that. And it's nice when your practical needs kind of line up really well with the narrative needs. I think taking away, you take away Cordy, you take away Wesley, you take away the safe space, you take away everything he owns, everything is blown up. This is where you, you take the anchors away from Angel and he really starts to move within the world. And we suddenly start to realize that he... Is alone. We're talking yeah. all about connection. Here he is with those connections Everything removed. Everything taken away. And when you mm-hmm. take something away, people realize how valuable it was in mm-hmm. the first place. It's it's good narrative work. This is maybe the part where I start to feel as though we're rushing mm-hmm. ever so slightly. Yeah. Because we have Angel at the hospital, which is great. Mm-hmm. We then have the brief scene of Wesley going downstairs into the apartment yeah. and finding the bomb inside mm-hmm. the weapons cabinet. We cut outside to Angel. Uh, with the explosion going off, we cut back inside to the apartment where uh, where Angel rescues Wesley. We then cut back outside to Wesley on the gurney and Angel running into Kate. And we just do this really, really quickly. Yeah. We've destroyed the office. Mm-hmm. We've destroyed his home. It feels like that should be given a little We need to hold on space. that for a moment. We need to really see Angel's yeah. response because he goes out immediately. And then Kate is there in his face just being terrible. And he finally tells her off, which I quite enjoyed. Because usually he's very polite to her through all of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, he has been tolerant yeah. of her yeah. to a surprising degree. Mm-hmm. No, I, I like this exchange, though unfortunately it just makes Kate worse. This is the scene outside on the street where Kate tells him that he can't leave the scene because he's a primary witness. Angel isn't in the mood to play nice. He didn't kill her father. He has no intention of sticking around to answer questions. If she wants an enemy, that's fine. <laughs> I like it very much. I like it too. It's about damn time. But it kind of needs to be the end of Kate's story because <laughs> yeah. I don't know where you... I, I mean, think we needed the end of Kate's story a little I know ago. where we take her, but I don't know how you get her yeah. out, of this, out mm-hmm. of this pit. At the hospital, we see Angel at Wesley's bedside. Then he visits Cordelia, finding her insensible from the pain of her visions. And if it is hard to watch Charisma Carpenter scream, mm-hmm. it is even harder to watch her not scream. Yeah. Ugh. It's it's really affecting. It is really incredibly good, yeah. Not least of all, because we usually rely on Cordelia to be such a ray of sunshine in the show. You know, to bring she's, the lightness, yeah. to, to bring in the jokes, you know. And now we have her, you know, she who is kind of like our, our cheer up and laugh sort of element in this yeah. in this story. She is completely in a very, very dark space. At Cordelia's bedside, Angel tells her that he's going to fix it. And as he clasps her hand, he sees a runic mark inscribed on her skin. We cut to the realm of the oracles, where Angel finds them dead, slain by the scythe that still lays on their bodies. The spirit of the female oracle, however, lingers. She knows all about Cordelia and tells Angel about Voca. Angel must find the scroll and stop Voca before he can complete the raising, capital R. Angel takes up the scythe and goes out into the night. Another great scene? Mm-hmm. Maybe again, just a little fast. Yeah. But it's... We're moving. It's mm-hmm. tough not to be caught up in the narrative at this yeah. point. Gunn and his friends are taking <laughs> supplies from a Mexican restaurant when Angel pulls up. Gunn's playful. Angel is all business. Gunn will protect Wesley and Cordelia in the hospital. Except. We don't see him again. That and plays no purpose. He's not even there no at the end of the episode. I See, I could have gone, <laughs> if we'd gotten rid of Kate and David and let everything breathe a little bit more and had a little more gun, I think that would have balanced out nicely. I think having gun there watching over Courtney and Wesley, but when we go back to the hospital, gun is nowhere. He's if, not, yeah. If this had been any other episode of Angel, 
we know how the narrative would have played out. Right. He takes up the scythe. He's resolved. He walks toward the camera. We get the hard cut. He goes after Voka. And we would never have thought in the span of a normal episode, but wait, shouldn't there be someone protecting Wesley and Cordelia? Yeah. Gunn is in this episode only because we wanted Gunn in this episode. And while I like his scene very much, there's no more consequence of his presence than there is of Kate or David's. I, I think know. the difference is just that we like Gunn more. We like Gunn more. And also that Gunn has more potential for actually having a role in this narrative. You know, That's true. I, I mean, think that they he could is at least given a job better. I yeah. think, you know. It would have been really nice to give David something to do, too. Yeah. You know, had there been just some trivial task that he could have been given... Yeah. That would have helped justify his presence in the opening of the episode. Yeah, I think you're right, though. I think David is a Buffy character. You know, as much as I I like him and I kind of want to see that story, um, you know, I think he just doesn't belong in this world as as we figure out, you know, eventually. No big spoilers. (laughs) We, though, move into our climax. Mm -hmm. Inside a mausoleum, a number of vampires are chained to a mystery box and Voka and his monk-robed backing singers have shown up. (laughs) This, it turns out is the raising, the summoning of a beast from below the earth. From the shadows, Angel watches the best and brightest of Wolfram and Hart leave for the ritual. Lila leaves Lindsay with an unsettling word. Then the car pulls out, along with a nondescript truck, and Angel follows after. We cut back to the mausoleum where Voka is conducting the ritual as the Wolfram and Hart team show up. There's a pause. Voka puts the scroll on top of the box and summons another scythe, just in time for Angel to burst in. They fight scythe on scythe, and Lindsay takes up the scroll, continuing the ritual in Latin as Angel and Voka fight, and the building begins to tremble. At the height of the ritual, the vampires suddenly dust and are swept into a whirlwind that's consumed by the box, and in a flash of light, Lindsay is hurled across the room. Angel and Voka fight on, Lindsay unconscious as the others leave, taking the box with them. Angel gets the upper hand and pins Voka to the wall, forcing him to bite down on the shaft of the scythe, which he then tears away, revealing the maggot-ridden mass beneath. Angel kills him, then faces off against Lindsay, who holds Angel at bay with a cross. He demands the scroll, but Lindsay resists. You're either the one with the power, or you're powerless, he says, which is a pretty great line. You either get stepped on, or you get to step in. (laughs) I kind of wish they'd gone back to that one instead, though. I yeah. like that even more. They're going to sever Angel's connections to the powers that be, which means that Cordelia will die. But when Lindsay holds the scroll out over the flame, Angel throws the scythe, severing Lindsay's hand. It's a bold scene. Uh, yeah, I got to say, I like Lindsay in this. One of the things that, you know, is makes a character great is the ability to take action and make things happen. Oh, yeah. And I love the fact that when, you know, that when Lindsay walks in, he's in you know, a, a position of diminished power. Holland is obviously not pleased with his performance and lately. Lila is circling and Lila like is sharks mocking with chum him. in the water. We're talking yes. about the guy who was forced to eat his own liver. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I thought of that just now. <laughs> I love Lila. I really She's do. great. She's, She's fantastic. Great. I mean, completely unnecessary. <sighs> She's not needed More in this episode. More necessary than a lot of other people, especially because of that rivalry with Lindsay. But, but Holland is the main source of conflict for Lindsay. No, we don't need anyone fantastic. else in the episode. No, I'm saying Lila's yeah. great and I yeah. enjoy her very much, but she's another character that isn't really given enough to do to justify her presence in this episode. Uh, I think she's okay. She's not taking a whole lot of time away the way that's, that David and fair. Kate are. So I'm okay with her kind of trailing along but with the team. You're right. Lindsay's ability to, to take ownership yeah. and to take action is 
a really compelling piece of characterization. And you can't help but respect him. Yeah. Even as he's doing terrible, terrible things. No, I really do. I, I didn't like him the first time I watched uh, the the whole of Angel. There yeah. was something about him that I just didn't like. I have to say, he has grown on me so <laughs> much. Yeah. What did you make of the severing of the hand? Do you remember the first time you watched it? Yeah, no, I remember that. I was I was incredibly shocked by that. Yeah. Um, but it is a really powerful moment. And also, I really like, too, because as I know, like, I've watched it a couple of times now. I know what's coming, you know? And he's holding the scroll, and Angel is like, I am warning you, dude. Like, he gave him a couple <laughs> of chances, you know? And then he just takes off the hand, and yeah. it is... So incredibly powerful and so kind of inevitable. This is always where Lindsay and Angel are going to go. They are always going to go to the most extreme because neither one of them are quitters. But we get there in a way that only increases the tension and the conflict between them. Yeah. That only leads to more dynamic and interesting narratives in the future. It's it's a really great piece of storytelling. It's also, yes, a really shocking moment. Yeah. It's a very, one might argue quintessentially angel moment Mm -hmm. because you don't do that in Buffy or you don't do that in that way in Buffy. Yeah, no, this is something we're really defining the lines. And I think that, you know, your reference of David Nabbit as a Buffy character even shows up like now that you've mentioned that I can see that so much more clearly mm-hmm. now that there are certain things that exist in an angel world and there are certain things that exist in a Buffy world and they might both be good, mm-hmm. but they don't belong. They don't they no, shouldn't no. cross over, ways. which yeah. is tracking the division that we've seen throughout the whole first season of Angel mm-hmm. that Buffy feels wrong when she's in L.A. Yeah, and no, now really. Angel feels wrong when he's in Sunnydale. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a crossover that doesn't entirely work. There are two universes that sit somewhat disharmoniously alongside one another. Because they're growing apart from each other. I think it's really nice, and I'm glad that Angel has found its own space, its own tone. Mm. And this tone is much, much more serious, much, much more grown up, I think, than Buffy is. Yes, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Though for every mature and progressive moment of storytelling, Angel severing Lindsay's hand, for example, we get something that is a little more classically Buffy- (laughs) The removal of the mask to reveal <laughs> Maggie Flash Whoa. beneath. Yeah. Not really a necessary moment, not really a necessary beat. Are you a little disappointed that Angel takes Vokat down just with a size that there's no greater plan <laughs> in play there? You know, Angel I just like that it's him. his own scythe that takes him sure. down. I think that that has a little poetry but to that it. That just means that Angel beats him on his own turf. Well, because Voka is so seriously dangerous, it feels like defeating him shouldn't be that trivial. And again, with a lot of the things that we have in this episode that don't have a narrative weight, we could have done a little bit more with that. I think it's simply the case that Voka's presented to us, described to us as a warrior. Yeah. And I think that that's a little bit of a misstep. Mm -hmm. Because in the fight, he's not actually that effective at all. Mm -hmm. What he is, is an excellent manipulator his weapon throughout the course of the episode is knowledge and subterfuge he should be more of a loki character right Mm -hmm. and angel can be the physical strength angel can can take him apart so in a physical confrontation voke is going down and then that would make more sense but yeah he is presented as also a very strong formidable you know physical threat as well it is though 
a really great fight sequence. It's mm-hmm. a contained space, which doesn't make the choreography easy. Mm-hmm. And we get some compromises in the way that it's shot. The the great flourish with which Angel lifts himself up into the doorway sure. mm-hmm. and lets Voka run underneath and then attacks him from behind, mm-hmm. gaining the upper hand. I, I like that in, in concept better than I like it in execution because mm-hmm. I feel that we, we have to cut some of those shots mm-hmm. a little sooner than we would necessarily it's like. It's a, a little disjointed space. and jagged. Mm-hmm. Overall, though, I think the choreography is great. I think the space is great. I think the entire execution of this climax mm-hmm. is fantastic. Well, I love that the, we've got Lindsay yeah. frantically making this thing happen. You know, um, I think that honestly, during that part, I am much more interested in what Lindsay's doing because the real antagonist here is Lindsay. Yeah, but you don't feel cheated out of that encounter, I yeah. think, mm-hmm. because Voka is such a such a clear and credible threat. Yeah. I, I really like the way it's put together. Mm-hmm. It's it's so often in Angel we will we will have an imperfect lock mm-hmm. right in the climax of the episode. Something will be a little ragged and we'll say, well, why didn't he just? Yeah. Why didn't they just? Why wasn't this the way that it was that it was done? Why didn't it come together in this way? This, I think, is, is damn near perfect. Mm-hmm. The only thing you might criticize, possibly, is the Wolfram and Hart team leaving so urgently with the crate, but leaving the scroll behind. Mm-hmm. The scroll pretty valuable. But I like what we get from that. I like the yeah. showdown between Angel and Lindsay. It mm-hmm. works really quite beautifully and the dusting effect is real nice really impressive yeah, yeah it mm-hmm. works it works at the hospital wesley reads the sacred words of anatole from the scroll and in a flash of light cordelia is her old self again the mark removed from her hand she saw so much pain but angel assures her that they're going to do what they can to help at home two days later cordelia makes sandwiches as wesley pours over the scroll trying to identify the beast that was raised Cordelia even gives Angel a container of blood, telling him not to be embarrassed because they're family. This, we learn, is the all-new Cordelia, dedicated to helping the unfortunate. Wesley, though, has an epiphany. John Shu, it turns out, <laughs> it doesn't mean die. It means live. Angel will become human just as soon as he's fulfilled his destiny and survived the apocalypse. It's a sweet moment. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. And it's also, it's called Tishanshu in L.A., which, of course, is a reference to Live and Die in L.A., which <laughs> yep. was a movie from, like, the, I think the mid-'80s or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a really fun kind of reference, this play in words. And I also like the fact that he didn't entirely, you know, misread it. it yeah. It's that yeah. in this particular culture, to die means to have lived. Yes. And so he can't die until he has lived because he's already dead. And so there's this play on words that I think, like, it's it's not as simple as, oh, goofy me i misunderstood that it's him understanding the the evolution of that language and how that all works which i think is a really nice he's he's able to kind of tease out this nuance at this point i like it very much Mm -hmm. there's there's really nothing that i don't like about this scene i mean we do hit the family note yeah again a little harder it's a lovely moment but because we've already gone there it feels like yeah we know cordelia we know that your family for cordelia you know, I mean, I feel like but this we're is still going Angel. there. No, this is still going there for Cordelia because she's the one that says, says it. If we're he family, had said, yeah. mm-hmm. we're well, family. No, when he came into the hospital, nope, that, they said, "Are true. you family?" And he said, "I'm family." Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I I like this. I like the family note. I think that that's that's a good thing. I like the bond between the three of them. Had it been the first time mm-hmm. that we'd that we'd really acknowledged hit on that, that they were and a family, we'd made that I a would thematic have part. Loved it, sure. and I would be willing to sacrifice those elements from earlier in the season mm-hmm. to to allow them to stand on their own in this episode. 
yeah, I'm I'm okay with it. I, I like it enough that it, it still works for me. Either way, it's a great moment. Mm-hmm. We get a whole new status quo. And we get a whole new Cordelia. We get a new Cordelia. And this is one of those things that, like, when you're talking about a character arc, when you change the essence of a character, you have to apply enough pressure to motivate that arc. And we do that beautifully with Cordelia in this episode. But it's also about consequence, Mm -hmm. which is something that we so often praise Buffy and Angel for compared to other TV shows. Mm -hmm. The consequence of Cordelia's experience, which was only present in this episode to apply pressure to Angel. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. the fact that the consequence of that experience will fundamentally alter her character. Absolutely. That's really strong writing. And I absolutely love that, that we've got this sort of new Cordelia without sacrificing the essence of who she is. I'm a little sad that we don't get a defined arc for Wesley. Mm -hmm. Wesley doesn't really arrive at a new resting place. No, he's kind of the same, but he has been arcing quite a bit throughout the season (laughs) so i think that like at this point we don't need to arc everyone i think that we we use cordelia she does motivate angel but it's also a big moment a big defining moment for her as a character as well and she evolves from this and wesley i think is has already come to a place where he's a little more comfortable with his role and let's talk about the difference between cliffhangers and game changers as we cut away to wolfram and hart where Lindsay, holland and lila investigate the crate Lindsay has proved his loyalty and impressed the senior partners, while Lila talks in a soothing voice to the contents of the crate. The beast, it turns out, is Darla. Indeed. To kind of fully explore the difference between Game Changer and Cliffhanger in this instance, the mm-hmm. Cliffhanger version of this is that we see Lila approach the crate mm-hmm. and we don't learn and what's inside. And we don't know what's going on. That is only half of the narrative beat. Mm-hmm. We, though, get the whole beat, which is the reveal of Darla. Right. And once everything we know, is different right. now. Once we know that Darla is there, everything is different. And although we don't know what's going to happen with Darla, we have enough information in this beat that it that it closes out that narrative. Weirdly, I don't think there's that much more to say about Tishanshu in LA because when you strip away the structural stuff, Mm -hmm. there's actually just a very pure through line. And it doesn't have a lot of thematic resonance with the rest of the season or with the seasons to come that we haven't already touched Mm -hmm. upon. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that this episode uh, does one thing really nicely, which is sort of it puts us so firmly within the angel universe. Like we've been sort of flirting with this arc of moving from a Buffy style place to this, you know, L.A. noir sort of place. And Mm -hmm. then now we're moving into this very defined space that these are the kinds of stories that we're going to tell. And this is the tone with which we're going to tell them. And I feel like we finally land there, you know, kind of firmly for angel in this episode we've been working our way towards it but here i feel like it's solidified which i think to segue back to our (laughs) discussion right at the top of the episode i think that's why this this episode has to go in at the top of the list yeah i think it's a great episode it does have some faltering spaces it has some things that are unnecessary david nabbit kate lockley um and it could expand on gun a little bit but otherwise i think that this episode really accomplishes a lot it's very well written it's nicely directed i Mm -hmm. like the character work i absolutely love what we're doing with Lindsay. it's so complicated and gray area and dark and gritty and i'm really enjoying that i guess the only thing we haven't really addressed just yet is angel himself Mm -hmm. i mean we have to commend him for the performance we have to commend david boreanaz for the performance because he manages to do a great deal and he manages to get some of that 
subtle humor. Mm -hmm. He manages to do that slightly lighter thing that I love so much. Oh my God. I love in the beginning when Cordy's making her joke and he goes, I thought it was funny. That's such a great moment. Wonderful little moment. I mean, you Mm -hmm. might argue that that moment of, you know, relative humanity somewhat undercuts the whole thesis of the episode, which is that Angel is disconnected from the people around him. But I'm not sure to what degree I buy the idea that Angel is disconnected. No, I We're think Cordy's that. worried that he's disconnected. Yeah. And Cordy is taking action to make him more connected. But I'm not really sure it's something that we as the audience are really that worried about. I mean, does, is Wesley that worried about it? Is Wesley well, that invested in making him more connected? Not he as just invested. states the fact. Cordy's the one who's really invested uh, yeah. in making Angel more connected. But Wesley is the one that offers... The, the diagnosis, and mm-hmm. because we get that scene, it feels as though that's the intent of the episode. Yeah. But I'm not sure if that is what we're supposed to think as mm-hmm. we move through it, because I I don't. I yeah. don't think that. I think that the martyrdom explanation, the idea that, that for Angel, because of who he is, because of the fight that he has chosen, he knows that his death, when it comes, will be in the service of something greater because all of his actions are in the service of something greater. And if his death is the price that, that must be paid for an act of good, then it's a fair price. And, and he made peace with that a long time ago. Like yeah. he, This is the attitude with which he came to L.A. in the first place. I'm going to fight this so, fight and I'm going to die in this fight. And that was always... The plan. It's I, like somebody coming to us with a prophecy saying you're going to live in Syracuse. And we're like, sure, well, we're already well, here. Good. Sure. Score. That's great. Take you that know? one off the list. Exactly. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I think that for me, that is a much more satisfying explanation and does more for our thematic understanding mm-hmm. of, of who Angel is. That means, though, that we spend quite a lot of time on this idea of connectivity. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that's a dead end. Without really following through on it. Sure. Because... Both, simultaneously, Angel doesn't need to be more connected and is already super connected. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is... When I said earlier that there's some some thematic philosophical stuff in the episode that doesn't land for me, that doesn't feel as though it, it all... That it all clicks together as it should, mm-hmm. that's the problem for me. And it's not that what we get is in any way bad. It's simply that it feels incomplete. Yeah, no, I think that that's a that's a solid argument. Um, I think that we it, it is somewhat Scavonian in that we are, you know, informed that Angel is disconnected. But the reality is that he's always been connected through Cordy and Wesley. And yeah. he's he's not anymore. This this prophecy doesn't upset him. And why do we want him to have something to lose <laughs> if he's going to die in this fight, which was his plan all along? So I think that we miss a little something of that. And I think that really what it could have been about and could have gone to was Cordy and Wesley recognizing their incredible connection to Angel, that this is something that they have at stake more than he does. Um, And we get that to a certain extent, um, especially at the end where we have the three of them working together in Cordy's apartment. You know, We must talk about the ending Mm -hmm. because the warmth that we get from David Boreanaz in those closing moments as he realizes what the prophecy really means. Mm -hmm. And when we get the beautifully understated, that would be nice. Yeah. I, I just can't say enough good things about that. I think that's that's a beautiful piece of character work. The writing in the first place serves that moment extremely well. And then the performance just imbues it with an enormous warmth. An enormous, ironically, humanity. Yeah. Well, David Boreanaz has a real ability to do this very subtle work, he has which is so powerful. The hell out of me this This season. is what happens with him. I think he gets underestimated because of the pretty. 
Yeah. And he really can bring it. He, he really can. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to seeing the results of our Angel Season 1 fan poll. Ah, yeah. A quick word on that. If you head on over to storywonk.com right now and scroll down to the bottom of the page, if you're listening to this shortly after it was released, at least, you will see there the Buffy Season 4 fan poll, where you will be able to cast your vote for favorite character, favorite performance, best romance, best episode, mm-hmm. and worst episode. Let me spoil the conclusion. Beer Bad's pretty much a lock for worst episode. I don't think there are a number of people in the world who could cast a vote at this point that would change that. Yeah. But still, mm-hmm. the other things are, are all up for grabs. Head on over to storywonk.com and cast your vote for the Buffy Season 4 fan poll. And then come back next Monday when the new episode of Dusted drops, where you'll have an Angel Season 1 fan poll to vote upon. We'll bring you the results of both of those polls in our Season 4 and Season 1 wrap-up shows next week. Let's formalize our end point here for season one of Angel. Tushanshu in LA goes in at number one. Goes in at number one. Not just because it's a great episode, but also because I really love the resonance of this story going in at number one and supplanting two hybrid stories. Two stories which, although good, aren't quintessentially Angel stories. They borrow a lot from Buffy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this, as... An episode in and of itself, I I genuinely think it's the best single episode of Angel that we've seen in the first season. I also think that as an encapsulation of the first season, it works beautifully. And as a template going forward, I think it's enormously powerful and, and gives me a real optimism for what we're going to get in season two and beyond. This has been a blast. Yeah. We're going to talk more about season one next Thursday, but... I have some things to say. I'm (laughs) astonished how much I've enjoyed season one. Yeah, it has been a lot of fun. I mean, Angel, I think for some people, for some viewers can be difficult to get into because it isn't Buffy. And when you want more Buffy, that's not what you're getting here. And I don't (laughs) think it's what you should get here. I think if they had done that, they probably wouldn't have gone on to tell any more stories because it's a dead end. But they really made Angel into something on its own, something different. There was something that Angel and Buffy were together. And now that they've split off, they're both going in different directions. And I really like the way that they have done that with the storytelling. They have not been afraid to go to a new place, to to go in a new direction. Because there must have been a temptation, particularly after drawing Angel back to Sunnydale for a cameo, admittedly, Mm -hmm. in the Buffy season four effective finale in Mm -hmm. the Yoko Factor. There must have been a temptation to have Buffy show up in L.A., to, mm-hmm. to unify the shows, to really make a statement about the Buffyverse as a whole, I am so very glad that they resisted that urge. I'm so very glad that they decided to, to take their own path. Yeah. So as we said, we'll talk about all of that and more next Thursday on our Season 1 wrap-up show. And there is still time for you to get in touch and let us know what you thought of the first season of Angel. You can email us directly, of course, at podcast at storywonk.com. You can stop by the Storywonk forum at forum.storywonk.com. Or you can send us a voicemail with your thoughts on Angel Season 1 that we will play in the show next week. That number, 252-505-WONK. That's 252-505-9665. That does it, I think, for our discussion of Tushanshu in LA. We'll be back on Monday with our Season 4 wrap-up special. I can't wait for that. Until then, I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is Dusted. Dusted.